Welcome to Middle Grade Mavens, where two author mums discuss their favourite middle grade books, provide recommendations and share insider industry tips for authors trying their hand at middle grade. Julianne Grasso is the author of the Frankie DuPont mystery series, cupcake enthusiast and part-time children's literacy wrangler. Pamela Eucherman is a writer, web designer and creative dance teacher who sometimes finds time for sleep. Both Julie and Pamela devour middle grade books, not only for research, but to share with their combined brood of four munchkins. Hi, Pamela, and welcome back to Middle Grade Mavens for our 15th episode. Hey, hi. <laughs> Which I must mention is now technically our third season. Woohoo! Wow, can't believe you've gotten far so far. Yes. And we are so chuffed that people have taken the time to listen to each and every episode, which is evidenced by our rising downloads. So thank you, um, Middle Grade Mavens listeners, for, yeah, getting on the journey with us. Yeah, exactly. And um, we've had some great mentions on Facebook groups, and I hear we even got mentioned at a conference recently. So thank you, everybody. Yes, yes. I should insert the clapping, but I can't, so I won't even try. Okay. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so let's dive in. Tell us, Pamela, what is the title of today's book? Today I'll be reviewing not an Australian book, but one of my favourite middle grade novels, The Girl Who Drank the Moon by Kelly Barnhill, published by Piccadilly Press in 2017. And I can't believe I haven't reviewed this yet because I adore this book. It won the 2017 Newbery Medal, which is awarded to the most distinguished contribution to American literature for children and was a New York Times bestseller, number one bestseller, I think, as well. Mm, yes, this one's been on my radar, so I've been waiting for you to review it. Oh, I don't know how I missed it, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> um, so would you share the jacket blurb with us? Absolutely. Every year, the people of the Protectorate leave a baby as an offering to the witch who lives in the forest. They hope this sacrifice will keep her from terrorising their town. But the witch in the forest, Zan, is in fact a good witch who shares her home with a wise swamp monster and a perfectly tiny dragon. Zan rescues the children and delivers them to welcoming families on the other side of the forest, nourishing the babies with starlight on the journey. One year, Zan accidentally feeds a baby moonlight instead of starlight, filling the ordinary child with extraordinary magic. Zan decides she must raise this girl, whom she calls Luna, as her own. As Luna's 13th birthday approaches, her magic begins to emerge, with dangerous consequences. Meanwhile, a young man from the Protectorate is determined to free his people by killing the witch. Deadly birds with uncertain intentions flock nearby. A volcano, quiet for centuries, rumbles just beneath the Earth's surface, and the woman with the tiger's heart is on the prowl. Oh, so <laughs> gripping. Mm, yes. Even the, even the blurb is gripping. <laughs> <laughs> so what genre would you class this as? Uh, as you probably guessed, this is fantasy, yeah. Pure fantasy, Pure yes. Lovely, yeah. And what is the estimated word count? Uh, it's quite a long book. 
it'd be pushing upwards of 80,000 words, I think, but my dodgy guesstimate counting put it higher than that. So, yeah, it's quite oh, Wow, so you've toned it down even. <laughs> <laughs> Just, you know, <laughs> to say. So what drew you to this book? Uh, you know, I think this is a combination of the gorgeous cover, um, the intriguing title, and the prestigious endorsements of the Newbury Medal and the New York Times book review. I had seen it in a few different bookstores, and I bought it for my niece because I know she's into fantasy, but then I just decided I had to buy it for myself as well. So, yeah, partly cover love with this one, actually. Oh, and actually, I think you and I were in a bookshop together and looking at this book saying, oh, I really want to read this. So you yeah. obviously went ahead and got it, and whereas I slackened and never did. Yeah, I think, I think that's I think we were at a book launch or something. Yes, we were at, um, we were at uh, Small Spaces. Um, yeah. Yes, yeah. yes. Right. But, uh, in anyway. uh, Yes, yep. Okay, so tell us about it. Um, the black, the back cover blurb has probably described the plot better than I could because it is quite complex and, as mentioned, it's a fairly long book. Um, and, in fact, I think it's been a bit of a pattern with me. The longer the book and the more I loved it, the less I have to say about it other than I loved it. <laughs> but, you know, in it there are shades of light and dark, humour and pain. You have the young girl Luna, the witch Zan, the dragon, the bog monster, but then you also have the protectorate, which it seems almost dystopian and includes a mad woman locked in a tower and some pretty grim elders who, who run this protectorate. Um, the themes of love, loss, caring for the environment and throwing down the establishment. Are, and there are other themes in there as well. They're, they're startlingly current, but they're also cleverly woven into this you know gorgeous, gorgeous fantasy world. Uh, look, it sometimes strays into quite dark territory, um, and you know sometimes it quite it does seem quite stark compared to you know the magical side of it but the language is so beautiful and gentle and lyrical that it it stays just on the right side of magical sort of like a modern version of the old fairy tales and there's there's a hint of fairy tale sort of background in there as well but yeah the books it look it's in no way predictable um and it just it just tugs you along it pulls you along to the very very last um mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> so overall enjoyment. Oh, as you can probably tell, I loved it. You know, nearly. I think it was probably uh, nearly two years ago. Or you know, my sense of time is warped at the moment. But um, yeah. It, look, it's still with me since reading it. And now that I've revisited it for my memories, you know, my memories of it for this review, I've realised that. Some of the lessons I learned about good fantasy storytelling may have sneakily seeped into my current work of work in progress. So inspired I by this book, yeah, the language was amazing. Um, yeah, I was riveted. It was really compelling. Yeah. So, who will love this book? What age would you recommend it for? Uh, look, I realise it's not a book for everyone. It's long, it's pretty heavy, and it's pretty complex. But I'd like to read what Kelly has to say. Um, and I bought, got this off Goodreads, um, what she had to say about her intended audience. I wrote this with a fifth grader in mind, but the cool thing about middle grade fiction in general is that it allows for big tent storytelling. In other words, 
Everyone is invited. Little kids, big kids, teenagers, adults, old people, everyone. The story manifests differently for different people, just like my experience reading The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe as an adult is different than the experience I had as a teenager, which is different than the experience I had as a child. Same book, different stories. There are some scary bits in the story, but no scarier than any other fairy tale. If they can handle the prose, and I don't pull any punches with the difficulty, I always expect my readers to come with their A game, then they can handle the content. End quote. <laughs> Look, this, and this definitely comes through in her writing, um, and I would agree that the ideal audience would be upper middle grade, but that others would enjoy it too. And But, you know, there are some scenes that might disturb younger children, so um, just step carefully. But I just love how she came and, you know, sort of cleared clear that, you know, and just sort of, um, I guess, backed up the idea that I sort of mentioned before in that, you know, it's different people, you take different things from books at different ages and, yeah. you know, it's, yeah. it's different layers um, and, you know, you're affected in a different way. So, you know, that, that applies for all books, but, you know, I love, I love that she said this about it. Yeah. Oh, so obviously not for reluctant readers. Um. No, not really. But, you know, I, I think I said in the last um, episode that, you know, any book might be the book to hook a reluctant reader. So you just never know. And this is fantasy. So, you know, fantasy as a genre is, you know, one that can is can quite easily um, pull in a reluctant reader. So this might just be the book, but, yeah, not for younger reluctant readers. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Well, that is your 15th review. Woohoo! Yay. Um, I think I probably should mention we were talking about being in a bookshop for um, the Small Spaces book launch, which is actually by Sarah Epstein. <laughs> and today it's her birthday, so we, we won't air this for a while, but um, perhaps you'll see his little uh, birthday present <laughs> belated. So, yeah. <laughs> Go out and read Sarah Epstein's Small Spaces. It's a YA, um, and it's just been shortlisted for a bunch of awards. And um, Sarah is, um, Pamela and I both do sort of writing sprints, um, and Sarah is one of our sprint buddies. So we are super proud of her. Anyway, <laughs> I shall stop. Happy birthday, Sarah. I know that you're hard at work today working on another novel, which we can't wait to read. Yes. So. Definitely. <laughs> so, Julie, over to your review for today. What's the title of your book? Today I'm reviewing The Witching Hours, The Vampire Knife by Jack Henselite, published in 2017 by Hardy Grant Egmont. Ah, this sounds intriguing, The Vampire. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Can you share the jacket blurb with us? Warning, do not look for fairies. You will not find them. And if you do, you will regret it. Anna and Max love scary stories, but when they find a mysterious knife on a dark and stormy night, truth soon becomes stranger than fiction. Dragged into a world of monsters and magic, will the siblings find a way to survive? Oh, this sounds like it's got a pretty specific uh, target audience here. Well, it does sound very scary, um, and yes, this is classed as middle grade horror, which my parents self sort of shudders at. Um, 
knowing that Giselle is a very um, sensitive reader. And I've seen quite a few middle grade books released um, in the past few years under this genre classification. And I have to admit, I was a bit sceptical about the necessity of such a genre. Um, however, in true Maven style, I decided before I diss it, I should read it. And you may remember my huffing about the use of murder in middle grade and then reading the Murder Most Unladylike series and completely loving it. So I decided it was time to get my hands on some middle grade horror. <laughs> yeah, I think you and I have become a little bit soft in our motherhood days and also having sensitive older children, which I think older children do tend to be sensitive, um, yeah. softened us a little bit. I, I Look, I used to read... Um, this it was a French, I think, murder mystery series, crime series that was translated to English, and I used to go to the library and devour them when I was, you know, in my early teens. And then yeah. read Stephen King when I was sixteen or seventeen. I couldn't read Stephen King now, to be honest. <laughs> oh, no, <laughs> oh, I, just, I don't know. I was going yeah. that, you know, in my life, but anyway, you know, it's not no, it's, it's I, for some um, people. To add to that. Um... So I'm a big fan of Hardy Grant Egmont and um, their uh, senior editor, Marissa Pintado, who spoke about this in um, a, an episode of So You Want to Be a Writer, which is called, I think they've just re-released it. It's a sort of a pop-up um, middle grade series called Magic and Mayhem. And actually, I was just at the car servicing place this morning listening to that interview with Marissa Pintado and she was talking about this book and I'm like this is two years later but um she was so excited about it I'm like oh my goodness I'm so excited too because I just read it um so yeah uh, and this was sort of a goal of hers to publish a middle grade horror and I'm oh, so glad that she did because it was so fantastic oh great I do remember that episode actually it was quite a key episode of so you want to be a writer I know uh, actually <laughs> listen to it on the plane on the way to Queensland on holiday so it sticks out in my mind okay but let's move on what's the word yes. count in this one um well in my inferior method of calculating that is counting a line across and lines down and timesing by the number of pages I could potentially be vastly wrong however I would say this is about 45k mm, okay so it's quite normal and I do I do the same <laughs> And then yes. I go, what? It can't be. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So um, you heard this on the So You Want to Be a Writer. Was that what drew you to this book or was there something else? I can't actually remember. I mean, the covers are fantastic, um, which, you know, I will always be drawn in by a great cover. Um, I don't know. I think perhaps it was the inkling that it was just time I read some middle grade horror. Oh, okay. So can you tell us more about it? Yes. The adventure begins with Anna and Max being dragged across the Transylvania countryside by their absent-minded father, whom they call the Professor. When Max sees a monster-like being flash past their car in the woods, both he and his sister are reluctant when their father deposits them at the Wild Time Inn. Their babysitter, babysitters are a crotchety old lady called Mrs Dalka, who smells of garlic and speaks very little English, and her quiet-as-a-mouse granddaughter, Isabella. Too busy in his books and maps and research, the professor leaves right away to go and find the library to pursue his research. 
Anna knows the moment her father leaves that Mrs. Dalka is not to be trusted and her granddaughter Isabella may well be her accomplice. When Max goes missing in the middle of the night, stolen through an open window, Isabella confesses she knows more about the mysterious monster in the woods. With their newfound partnership, Anna and Isabella must band together and use their wits and wisdom from an old book of fairy tales to defeat the beast and rescue Max. Oh, it sounds fantastic. And how much did you love this book, Julie? Oh, my goodness. I loved this book. <laughs> <laughs> so the adventure starts right away, drawing you into Anna and Isabella's quest. I think I got to about page 90 before I realised I was so drawn into this story. Now, normally in middle grade, I get to about the 50-page mark and just despair because we still haven't actually started on the adventure. Now, I find this quite bamboozling every time it happens in middle grade since every editor I've ever heard of counsels new authors to start in the action, yet so many books still begin with a huge amount of unnecessary, unnecessary setup and backstory. So anyway, I digress. Story lag was certainly not the case in this book and I found myself chugging like a freight train to the end. The term horror as a genre is certainly not unfounded as there were some very scary moments, but there wasn't any gore or outrageously awful stuff that I would consider is so often apparent in horror movies. Now, I loved the way Jack Henselite kept this story moving, not stopping for a moment to smell the roses or over-describe the surroundings. Overall, this was a cracking good read, and I am happy to say I have the next two books from the library and will be diving in ASAP. Oh. Sounds fantastic. Um, so as a middle grade horror book, I guess this would be classed in the upper, you know, you'd be recommended for the upper middle grade? Well, actually, no. I would say this is 8 plus because let's face it, it's called middle grade horror. But I actually think it it just, it, uh, it was scary, but it wasn't that scary, if you know what I mean. Like, some kids will love scary stories like Goosebumps, as we've said, um, but it was just, it was so magically done that you, you knew this couldn't really happen. So I just, I uh, felt like the old time sort of horror, not the new time horror where it's, you know, chainsaws and hor horrible stuff like that. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. Sounds good. Um, and do you think this would be one for reluctant readers though or no? I am going to say yes because the story just oh, it just drew you in. Even with it, the longer word count, um, I think reluctant readers will still be, you know, totally engrossed, especially if you're reading it aloud. Um, and I think confident readers will lap this up. I will say that kids who can't disassociate scary themes from reality and who are prone to rehashing things in the form of bad dreams should Probably not read this book, but I, I mean, I think of Giselle. She would never read this book probably, but my goodness, I, I hope she does one day, you know, I hope she gets over it because it was such a great story. Okay, yeah, I mean, like I've said before, you just can't tell what they're going to love and what they're going to have nightmares over, so. Yeah. Yeah, great. Thanks for that, Julie. Well, that is the end of our 15th episode. Here we are, middle grade mavens, and a little recap for our listeners. 
we've recently re reviewed The Witching Hours, The Vampire Knife by Jack Henselite, which was published by Hardy Grant Egmont in 2017, with three subsequent books following. Woohoo! Now, I personally find it fascinating to hear the story of how a book came to be. We thought it would be awesome to invite Jack into the middle grade Maven's hot seat for some authorly banter. And guess what? He agreed. So hi, Jack, and thanks for joining us at Middle Grade Mavens. Hello, Julie. You're so welcome. Exciting to be here. Yes. Well, tell us, Jack, where did you get your start in writing? Oh, that's a very open-ended question. Um, it's one of those... <laughs> I'm sure if you asked any author, you'd it'd be they'd always answer it was something they always wanted to do, and that's definitely true in my case. Ever since I was very small, it was the only job I could think of that ever sort of made sense to me. I was like, yeah, working with words and making up stories—that's that's what I want to do. Um, so from that age, I just entered every short story competition I could find and kept reading all through high school. But then the, the big move, the bold decision was at university level to study a Bachelor of Arts with a major in creative writing. And that seemed to go pretty well. So after that, I did the Masters of Creative Writing, Publishing and Editing. And it was in the first year of that that I wrote The Vampire Knife and it got picked up by Heidi Grant Egmont. So that was, mm. that was it all felt very risky the whole time I was there studying, but <clears throat> in the end it uh, came good. Oh, fantastic. Well, to be honest, I actually did not write my whole life. So I'm one of the, I'm one of the few. Oh, okay, that's, that's even more odd. interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't really start writing until I was about 33, which I think is about oh, many years older than you. That's really <laughs> interesting. Now, we won't mention that. <laughs> <laughs> what spurred the change? What, what switched um, you on to mindset? Yeah, so I, I was a nurse for many years and I always sort of said, gee, I love to write books for kids and um, I had a baby and there's a lot of time on your hands when you have babies. <laughs> so I started writing. So, yeah, that's my um, juxtapose, I guess. <laughs> yeah, that is a really interesting juxtaposition. Yeah. So I know that you wrote The Witching Hours during um, that time, but where did you actually get the inspiration for it? The, um, I always was attracted to writing for a middle grade audience and sort of doing fairy tales, spooky sort of stuff. But the, um, the formative moment uh, sort of came in the 10 years leading up to it. My family grew and I suddenly had a bunch of new cousins. And as a cousin who was about 20 years older than them, I sort of naturally fell into that babysitter role and suddenly had this captive audience where I could just be entertaining them and scaring them and lying to them um, as often as I could. And I was, <laughs> I was going for a walk with my cousin Gypsy when she was about seven and she looked up at the sky and it was a little bit dark and she sort of said in a very worried voice, oh, is it the witching hour? <laughs> I said, no, no it's, it's, it's not the witching hour. It was only about seven o'clock, but I, that was, I sort of had something over her then. I knew she was worried about this this concept of the witching hour. Yeah. So I was babysitting her a bit later on and I made up this story about a girl at a sleepover who wakes up in the middle of the night and hears this strange noise outside her window. And um, it was essentially chapter five of book one, The Vampire Knife. And I sort of just ha had it there. It all sort of crystallized. And mm -hmm. in the months following that I was like that that was a pretty good little self-contained horror story I wonder if I could keep 
building that into something bigger and better and novel sized. Um, and that was what I managed to do, which was really exciting. But that was that was the formative moment. My, my cousin asking me if it was the witching hour. Oh, that is the the best. Um, <laughs> and like, I think most people assume that books actually start in sequence. But I've heard so many people say that, you know, they actually write in scenes and I personally don't. So I find that fascinating when someone else actually, you know, hits on a scene and it's actually chapter five, not chapter one. Yeah, no, I absolutely write by scene. And then I sort of think of it as once I have enough good scenes in a line, that's when it's time to start writing the book. Oh, fantastic. So I guess I always want to know how long it took you to write, but when it's non-sequential, that might be a bit of an ask, but I'm still going to ask it. How long did it take you to write The Witching Hours and what kind of research did you do for that story? Because I, I think you put in some Romanian as well. <laughs> yeah. Um, as soon as I decided I knew I wanted it to be about a vampire, um, Transylvania became the obvious setting. <laughs> a little bit cliched, but also a lot of fun <laughs> to, be able to draw on all that history and folklore. Yeah. Um, so planning the scenes, I sort of count that as being part of the research phase still. So I spent a couple of months researching it and plotting out what I wanted to do. And I watched, I've never been to Romania, but I watched a full documentary on the Carpathian Mountains and sort of got my head around the scenery and read a bit of Bram Stoker and all that all that wonderful vampire literature. I love vampire films. That's where I sort of got my main grounding in the folklore of that particular monster. Yeah. And, but then the actual because I'd planned it so thoroughly, the actual writing of the book was over a six week period. So yeah, start to finish I think it was about six weeks. So not too long, but but I had spent a long time thinking about exactly what I wanted to do. I wrote the first chapter many times. I, I didn't keep going to chapter two until I thought chapter one had all the rhythms that I was wanting to continue throughout the book. Wow. Wow. Well, I mean, I picked this book up and I said to Pamela, my fellow maven, oh, my goodness, it just drew me in. Like I was <laughs> I was chapter four before I realised I was, you know, reading and I'm, I'm quite a reluctant reader. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, this one got uh -oh. me in. So you did get your first chapters right. <laughs> I'm delighted. I figure when you're writing for the YouTube generation, you need to, you, you know, you're competing with a five-minute video, you know. Yes. YouTube is so designed to trick your brain into going just one more just one more and i think that's what yes. modern day middle grade fiction needs to do as well we need to get absolutely competing with ipads right now did you plan the subsequent books from the get-go or did they evolve after the success of the witching hours um when i was writing the vampire knife i I thought it would be a good first book in a series, but at that time had no idea what those other books would be. And then I got to the end of book one and was like, fantastic. You know, obviously I'm going to start thinking about the next couple of installments now. But I got really lucky because uh, I sent it off to Heidegger and Egmont. And by the time they contacted me and called me in for a meeting, I had already plotted out, I think, the next four books up to oh, book five. Wow. <laughs> And so I went into this meeting expecting that we'd be talking about uh, the vampire knife, but then their first questions were, tell us what happens next. And mm -hmm. like, there, there was this, there was so 
it could have gone so terribly because I didn't know that that was what I was supposed to be preparing for. But luckily, that's what I had been preparing for. And so I could say, oh, oh yes, fantastic. In book two, they go to England. And oh, in book three, they go to Iran. So I got, it was a very lucky roll of the die there. Oh, well done, Jack. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not not well done, just uh, you're very yeah. lucky, Jack, is what yes. happened. Yes. So I guess um, we always wonder how much editing did you have to endure before the book <laughs> was ready to go? Oh, I feel like endure makes this a very leading question. <laughs> <laughs> Um, no, I my editor at Hardy Grain Egmont, Luna, is one of my my favourite people in the world. She's one of the best people I've ever met. Um, yes. I don't endure anything with her. And yeah. I, but I also think I get lucky because I have that uh, editing degree. I think the first drafts that I send off are still very clean. I don't yes. like to send it off um, with any niggles on my end. I, I, I try and feel confident about it. And so book one, um, we did not change much at all. It sort of went straight through to the copy edit and then we were just interrogating every sentence to make sure um, every sentence was as strong as every other sentence. It got a bit more interesting with the second book, The Troll Heart, because um, you'll be familiar with the Isabella character in book one. Yes. And I'd sort of imagined that every book would have a stand-in for that character. So even though the children go to a different country, I thought there'd always be an equivalent of Isabella there, another cool, adventurous girl to sort of show Anna and Max the ropes. And um, in our early structural discussions, we sort of hit upon the fact that we sh uh, the friends that they make should be more diversified. Oh, um, right, yeah. You know, put some boys in there as well as the girls. And so for the second draft of book two, we took an entire character out. So that that was a more that was the most significant change that's been made to any of the books. Poor old Emily, she hit the cutting room floor. Oh, Emily, she'll have to yeah. have her own story. <laughs> yeah, well, we have not. We'll never meet Emily in this series, unfortunately. Yeah. And that's the thing. Um, I think uh, the assumption is that males will write male characters. Um, mm. You know the get-go but you haven't you've written um you know wonderful female characters so yeah i think that might have been what drew me in as well i was like oh my gosh this is just so not you know adhering to the what we think are the rules for fiction for, for um, middle grade so yeah i think it part a lot of it would have come from the fact that the initial idea was from my cousin gypsy who was a sweet adventurous little girl and i was like oh well if i'm writing this story for a sweet adventurous little girl it'd be a lot of fun for her to see herself in the manuscript yeah and i i think the other thing that um really stood out for me and i i've said this in our review which you haven't yet heard um, no, I thought it'd be embarrassing if you giving me a terrible review yes no no <laughs> rest assured it is a great review um <laughs> We, we technically call this middle grade horror, which I think, you know, some people would be a little bit, um, oh dear, <laughs> about. But no, it's actually, you know, a, a, a genre that is growing and it should because <laughs> showing, you know, life skills in, in a safe horror zone is actually really necessary for our children to understand. So, yeah. That's fantastic when people ask me what I do and I say oh I write horror stories for children and they yes. <laughs> universally just give me this look of oh is that <laughs> <Notification>. <laughs> and 
Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I always think of them as very, the stories as very dark fairy tales. And because all yeah. those, the first stories we hear are all those Brothers Grimm fairy tales that have terrific, horrific elements. Exactly. And so, and so these stories are sort of just doing that in a bit of a, with a bit of a modern spin. Yes. So how do you manage the pressures of life and still find time to write? Um, I sort of feel like I'm very young and silly at the moment, so I don't, I don't necessarily have as many pressures of life as other people do. But my main answer to that question would be that I'm a complete night owl. So yeah. most, most of these books have been written during the witching hour and yes. the early hours of the morning that follow it. So... I love writing at night because the world around me just kind of shuts down and I'm just in this quiet little bubble with my own thoughts, bashing away at my computer. Yeah. So, yeah, I, 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 I strongly recommend writing in the middle of the night. It's very, very relaxing. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, I think I have actually written in the middle of the night, but for vastly different reasons, <laughs> being awake with small infants. But anyway. uh, Wherever you can find the time, I say do it. <laughs> yes, and that's funny because I think when you have in those first years of having a baby, I think they call those hours the witching the hours. Witching just hours, yes. You're yeah. <laughs> <laughs> always up, screaming child. Yes, yes. Stop, I'm trying to write a, a yeah. chapter. <laughs> so um, I think you may have answered this surreptitiously, but do you have an agent and how crucial do you feel this is for your career? Uh, yeah, I do not have an agent. Um, sort of studying creative writing at uni, it was something that came up a bit, something that we talked about. And we got told quite explicitly that within Australia, uh, having an agent matters a lot less than in the American system. Sort of having in America, it's essential to get your work Put in front of a publisher and in yeah. Australia it's more optional so because I've optioned to not have one I, I can't really speak as to what the benefits of having one would be I've got I've got no idea yeah <laughs> when I was studying uh, a, a source of anxiety for me was even once I'd completed a manuscript I imagined it would be still very difficult to get it in front of a publisher or an editor I sort of had this mental image of the slush pile at the back of the publishing offices and my yeah. manuscript arrive and they'd chuck it on and I'd just have to hope and get lucky that someone would pick it up and the ones down the bottom I thought would sort of be mouldy and decaying and no one had ever seen them. <laughs> and that just wasn't true at all. Like so many of the big Australian publishing houses have these open submission periods that they, they publicise. And so for Heidi Grant Egmont it was the Ampersand Prize but there's also the text prize and I think Walker Wednesdays is a thing so if yeah. you do your research you can guarantee that your book is going to be read by someone at the publishing house and so at that point you're just looking for that holy trinity of have you told an entertaining story have you told it in an entertaining way and um just does the publishing house think it can make money off you <laughs> so yes yes which is so um you know, you hear lots of stories about people being so depressed about the rejection and, oh, it must be a terrible book. And time and time again we say it probably isn't a terrible book. They just might already have a vampire story. Yeah, so, it's, yeah. that third, it's that third factor. Are you going to fall in the good graces of market tastes and expectations, yeah. all that tricky nebulous stuff that, yeah, you have to yeah. get lucky. Now... <laughs> 
do you actually read widely in the genre and age that you write for? And I guess in your genre, there isn't a great deal. But <laughs> you do read in that in, you know, in the middle grade market. Yeah, absolutely. One of one of the interesting things that I tell people is that I've never read Goosebumps. And, you know, if you're writing middle grade horror, that's sort of the thing everyone has in mind. But I used to think the covers were just way too scary, all that dripping, slimy. Yes. Ugh, I couldn't, could not abide it. But, yes. but I, yeah, in describing my books as dark fairy tales, I've always loved dark magic. So anything that's yeah. sort of, uh, yeah, anything in the fantasy genre that's got a bit of, you know, dripping blood and witches stirring their cauldrons. <laughs> I've, I've always adored. And you're even just looking at my bookshelf now, you know, there's, there's Tintins and there's, yeah, Neil Gaiman, Hansel and Gretel. Yes. Yeah, I, I love yes. reading dark middle grade fiction. I think it's fantastic. Yeah. I am a massive Neil Gaiman fan, so <clears throat> excuse me, I understand. Yep. <laughs> so is there one middle grade book that you think every child in the middle grade you know sphere should be able to read if they could oh one book one book <laughs> <laughs> way too hard um, I, I saw this question and i had to think about it um i think even, as much as i've come to love neil gaiman and obviously jk rowling as well all those heavy hitters I think the author that still has the biggest influence over me is enid blyton because i think when you're a big reader as a child you discover Enid Blyton and you realise she wrote about a million books and you go, wow, <laughs> I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. never going to read them all. I'm just going to gorge myself on as many as I can do. And so I think the I think the Faraway Tree and the Enchanted Wood, I think would uh, take, take that as given and the Famous Five as well. The series that I'd recommend that's a little bit less well-known is The Five Find-Outers, which was mm. sort of a, an ever so slightly younger uh, target audience than Famous Five. And the yeah. first one of those is The Mystery of the Burnt Cottage. That's one of my defining memories as a child is my dad reading me The Mystery of the Burnt Cottage. And it wow. it's fantastic. Just a group of kids coming together to solve a mystery. I think it's had an influence on everything I've written since. I love that book. Fantastic. We will have to stick that on our um, to-be-read pile, I think. Yeah, everyone goes straight to the famous five. Don't skip the five find-outers. They're excellent. <laughs> we won't. Now, I know you've got four books. Oh, is it five now for the Witching Hours series or is it still four? Book four came out in this month. So, yeah, we've just oh, hit four. Fantastic. I'm still working my way through through two and three. So <laughs> I, I hope I'll there. continue to scare you. Yes. Now, is there another Jack Henselite manuscript being scrutinised as we speak? Don't keep the mavens in suspense. Aha. Uh -huh. Well, when I had those first meetings with Heidi Grant Egmont, I pitched it as a series of six, and incredibly, they agreed. So yes. Oh, wow. <laughs> five is currently being scrutinised. We're just finishing the structural edits now, and then we'll take it into the copy edit. And then I've got one more to write fresh. So my notebook is overflowing at the moment. And I've just got to fi yeah, finally sit down and sort of end this entire saga. It'll, it'll have been about 200,000 words since when I started, which wow. is just staggering. I didn't, I kind of, I was kind of like, yeah, six books. And I know the first one's 300, <laughs> but still the, the 200,000 sort of eluded me. Wow. So it's sad, bittersweet to finish it off, I think. 
Yeah. Well, I think you've got to go hard or go home, haven't you? <laughs> so. Yeah, absolutely. But then, yeah, you're right. Then, like, then I get to start thinking about what's next. And so, yes, yeah, yes. I have I've had an I've had an early meeting with my publishers about what that next thing could be, and they were very open to my ideas. So, yeah, it's just about oh, well, finishing hours and starting starting the next thing. Right. So, where can we find you online if our listeners are interested in checking out your books? Um, I have a website at jackhenselite.com, um, which is mostly a blog that I occasionally remember to update, but many, <laughs> many posts still there from previous years that a person could read. Yes. And uh, I have an Instagram account, which is jack.henselite, I believe, at jack.henselite, where yes. I sort of chronicle what might be my life as an author. Yes. <laughs> A little bit of strange alternate reality stuff creeping into my Instagram. Fantastic. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us um, at Middle Grade Mavens, Jack, and we cannot wait to keep reading the Witching Hours series. <laughs> no worries at all. Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. Thanks for joining us again for Middle Grade Mavens Season 3. We're absolutely gobsmacked we've made such a splash in the world of kid literature. Stay tuned for more reviews and interviews. Next up, Pamela reviews Elizabella Meets Her Match by Zoe Norton Lodge, illustrated by Georgia Norton Lodge, and Julie reviews Pog by Padraig Kenny. If you'd like to know more about the Mavens, log on to middlegradepodcast.com or to find Julie online, drop by julieangrassobooks.com. And to find Pamela, stop by www.ueckermann.net. Music